Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I walked into the steps. I didn't trip on the steps. I literally walked into them. And I went straight down onto the steps and various people came rushing over. And I still thought, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? And I sat there and a woman that had come up with a, with a buggy and I said to her, I'm fine, I'm absolutely fine. But the funny thing is I can't remember how to get up. She got me the glass of water and it was while she'd gone to get the food that I realized that as I was trying to get my glass of water, I was just banging into the table. So I couldn't raise my arm high enough to pick up the glass of water. And when she came back with the food, I said, look, Alice, I'm really sorry. I think there is something a bit funny going on here. You'll need to go and tell someone or get me some help. I remember the nurse saying to me, look, everything's going to happen very quickly. Don't worry, we'll explain everything to you in a, a bit later on. After that, the next thing I remember, and this is one of my clearest memories, and when I actually started to feel not frightened, but a little bit concerned, was that I remember someone lifting my right arm, because the, the bleed turned out to be on the left side of my brain, so my right side was paralysed, and they lifted my right arm right up here above my head and let, it, and let go, and it just felt like a way that you can't do it. You actually can't physically do that, but I just remember it dropping like a stone and thinking, oh, what was that? Never let anyone tell you that you won't get better or that recovery stops at six months. I think that's one of the stroke myths that is still out there and it comes from clinicians, it comes from doctors. I think it is changing, but people will say, well, you should, if you'll get so far within six months and then you, whatever you've got to then, you probably won't get any better. That's not true and, and you will. Hello, this is Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories. Strokes can have a significant impact on your emotional and psychological well-being. About a third of stroke survivors experience depression after their stroke. Over half of stroke survivors experience symptoms of anxiety at some point within 10 years of their stroke. Cognitive impairments can include problems with thinking, memory, concentration, and difficulties with things like basic arithmetic can make simple tasks quite difficult. To help you navigate life after stroke, whether you're the patient or somebody close to them, we started Stroke Stories, the podcast, to seek out and to hear from stroke survivors. In this edition, we hear from Margaret Cheng from London, who suffered a stroke at the age of 57. Before the stroke, I was running my own business. 
my background is in market research and I used to work for BT and I ran the market research department there for five years and then I went back like many people after my first child thinking nothing's going to change but of course it did. I had my second child while I was still there and then I left and set up my own business. So I was running that business for over 20 years as the kids were growing up. It was good, it was a successful business. I worked pretty much full time. In the year before my stroke though, I had taken a year off because my younger daughter had decided to tackle her AS and A2 levels in one year from home and uh, she needed support in doing that. So I took that year to help her get through that and successfully, as it turned out, get a place at university where she went off to study computer science. And we were just coming to the end of that year. She'd got her place and I was just thinking about picking things up again when the stroke happened. On that actual day, Alice was due at Westminster University in the centre of London for an assessment for support at university. She went to UEA. I got up as normal. I took Bilbo here, the dog, out for a walk. I went to the gym. At the time that I had my stroke, I had absolutely no risk factors, and that's very important to me in that I didn't have high blood pressure, um, I didn't have high cholesterol, I was fit, I did yoga, I went to the gym, I walked the dog. So anyway, we, we went out for the walk with the dog, knowing that I was going into town with Alice, went to the gym, came back, the two of us got ready, we walked around to the bus stop. I had a hemorrhagic stroke, so a bleed in the brain, and I think... I'm not 100% clear, but I think that the stroke or the bleed had actually started by the time we got on the bus round the corner here in Crouch End because I bashed my right foot very heavily on the step at the back of the bus and I just said to Alice, oh my goodness, I really hurt my foot. How did I manage to do that? Thought nothing of it. Carried on, went down to Westminster University, which is not far from Oxford Street, left Alice waiting, went to the ladies, walked into the door. And again, I just thought, oh, on the way out, walked into the door again. Still thought nothing of it. Sat down, did the interview with her, with the assessor, left, walked up towards Oxford Street and bashed into several people on the way. Actually, as I'm saying it out loud now, it does sound really bizarre, but... I said to Alice at one point, what is wrong with me today? I am so clumsy. And then we separated because she had to go down to Hamley's to the game concession. I went into Liberty and then I went to a shop on the corner, the corner of Regent Street where Liberty is, uh, which at the time was um, Banana Republic. It's now something else. It also had a different set of steps then. It had several steps going in and literally I walked into the steps. I didn't trip on the steps I literally walked into them and I went straight down onto the steps and various people came rushing over and I still thought what are you doing what is wrong with you and I sat there and a woman that had come up with a with a buggy and I said to her I'm fine I'm absolutely fine but the funny thing is I can't remember how to get up and I literally couldn't I just couldn't think I was sitting there sort of shifting a little bit and thinking how how do you stand up and I couldn't do it. But I still insisted that I was fine. The manager came over, shall I call an ambulance? I'm like, no, no, no. I said, been to the gym this morning. I haven't had any breakfast. It must just be that I need something to eat. That is literally what I said to him. I managed to get Alice on my phone because she'd gone to meet me at the shop across the road where I was meant to be. She came in. I said to the manager, look, pull me up by my hands and we'll go around the corner and we'll get something to eat and I'll be fine. And so he did that. I mean, to be fair to him, he did offer several times to call an ambulance, but I thought I was fine. I really did. 
So he pulled me up and I got onto my feet. I took Alice's arm, which was unusual because I wouldn't normally do that. She was 19 at the time. And I remember saying to her as we walked around the corner towards the Palladium, oh, we'll get a taxi home. Now, we were right beside Oxford Circus and I would never have done that either. We went into Five Guys, the hamburger place, which she likes. She's vegan. They do a very good vegan burger. And I said, right, go and get me something to eat and a glass of water. She got me the glass of water and it was while she'd gone to get the food that I realised that as I was trying to get my glass of water, I was just banging into the table. So I couldn't raise my arm high enough to pick up the glass of water. And when she came back with the food, I said, look, Alice, I'm really sorry. I think there is something a bit funny going on here. You'll need to go and tell someone or get me some help. So she did that. And I remember the look on the face of the shop manager as she came over, because by that time, I think I was just sitting there pretty still. Um, And I heard her on the phone. She dialed 999. I heard her on the phone with the emergency service. And I could hear, you know, sometimes you can hear the other side of a phone call. And I could hear them asking stroke questions that I knew from the fast advert on TV. And I was sitting there thinking, what on earth are they doing asking stroke questions? I'm not having a stroke. But also I knew I couldn't move. And by the time, five minutes later, there was someone there on a bike. And by that time I couldn't move. I could speak and I could move my head and my face didn't drop. And my, my words weren't jumbled, but I couldn't move anything else. And then it becomes more of a blur. So I remember well up to that point, I know that the fast response person got an ambulance. I know the ambulance came. I have no recollection as to how I got from my seat in Five Guys into the ambulance. But I do remember being in the ambulance and I remember Alice being in the ambulance. The next thing I remember is arriving at um, UCLH. And I remember having a thought about, oh, I wonder if you have to go into triage or, you know, just a random thought like that, thinking, do I have to sit like this for ages? But anyway, I remember the door opening. There were like five people all there. I I don't know if I was transferred to another trolley. I have a vision of that, but that might not be accurate. I remember the nurse saying to me, look, everything's going to happen very quickly. Don't worry. We'll explain everything to you in a, a bit later on. After that, the next thing I remember, and this is one of my clearest memories and when I actually started to feel, not frightened, but a little bit concerned, was that I remember someone lifting my right arm because the the bleed turned out to be on the left side of my brain, so my right side was paralysed, and they lifted my right arm right up here above my head and and let go, and it just felt like a way that you can't do it. You actually can't physically do that, but I just remember it dropping like a stone, and thinking, oh, what was that? And then I remember, I must have had a scan, I don't remember that, but I remember coming out of that bit and seeing my two girls in the corridor. So Alice had come with me, Harriet by this time had arrived from from she had been at work, and thinking, oh, there's Harriet and Alice. (laughs) And the next thing was that I was in the HASU, which they have at UCLH, the hyperacute stroke unit, and was wired up to various things, mainly there were blood pressure monitor and my husband arriving. And just the realisation then hitting me that I actually couldn't move. Although fairly serious, Margaret found herself in hospital only for a short stay. So I was in the hyperacute unit for three nights. I had a number of scans, CT scans and an MRI. Yes, I had my first MRI scan there because... On the first one, I didn't realise that it would be a good idea to keep my eyes shut. Because if you open your eyes, it's all you can see. It's like being in a coffin, basically. 
So I do remember that first one. They told me that the bleed hadn't got any bigger and it was after that second scan. So I had a scan when I went in, I had another scan that day and I had another scan the next day during the night after my family had left and the blood pressure monitor was going off every 15 minutes. And I remember lying there thinking, oh right, so they're monitoring my blood pressure. And then I sort of did a mental check of my body and I thought, that's all they're doing. They're not doing anything else. There's nothing else at all because they had told me on the first day and told my family that they couldn't find the cause of the bleed. So by the next day, they were able to say that the bleed hadn't got any bigger, but it took me a long, long time, like months and months, to actually say out loud to my consultant what would have happened if the bleeding hadn't stopped. And he, of course, looked at me and said, well, you wouldn't be here. And I just said, it's just I remember being in hospital and thinking, nothing's happening. And that's because with a bleed, unless they can find the cause of the bleed, if they can find the cause of the bleed, then they may go in, they may not. There are various things that they can do, but if they can't find the cause then that's it. And that is, <laughs> and that's, that's the thing that scares me now, if I think back on it, because I don't think we were clear on that at the time. I also remember from that a consultant that I never saw again. He certainly looked like a consultant. He had that look about him. Coming around quite late in the evening, and I was on my own, and I said to him about the movement, I said, am I likely to get my movement back? And he said, quite, being quite jolly, he said, um, oh, well, you may get 1% back, you may get 99% back. No one knows at the moment. And I thought, oh, right, great, thank you. Probably wish I hadn't asked now. So, <laughs> but anyway, after three days, I was out of bed, supported walking, is my recollection. Because I remember I was able to get to the loo with help. And I do remember someone saying to me, I'm sure you'll be a candidate for an early supported discharge, at which point I burst into tears because I thought they meant they were going to send me home and I couldn't move. What they actually meant was that I would go to a rehab ward and then, but from there, hopefully not be in hospital for months, would be in for weeks rather than months. After three nights in the Hasu, I was transferred to the Royal Free Stroke Rehab Ward and altogether I was in hospital, I think, a day over two weeks. So I spent the next 10, 11 nights in the, in the rehab ward and I did come home with an early supported discharge but to achieve that I had to be able to get out of bed walk to the bathroom ultimately I had to prove that I could shower myself which is a bit embarrassing but you know you just get on with it they have a kitchen there so I had to go in and show that I could lift a kettle and get tea bags out of a cupboard and it was quite bizarre because all of these things actually at the time were quite hard hard it really does sound daft saying that now but they were and then I remember them taking me to the top of a flight of stairs and looking down the stairs and thinking oh my god did I ever go up and down stairs so I had to learn to go up but to be fair all these things once I was at the stage where they could take me to do these things you learn them again well I did anyway relatively quickly and I was having daily physiotherapy I didn't need speech therapy I saw speech therapists when I didn't need to have speech therapy I also had occupational therapy and I came home ultimately with a set of paper clips and various other tools, balls, and I had to roll balls backwards and forwards, unclip paper clips. And I was still doing that for quite a few weeks after I came home to get the movement back in my hand. My physical recovery to about 90% took two months maybe. The last thing to come back was my shoulder and my foot and they do go together. And one day 
one of them moved, my foot stopped dragging. Well, it wasn't dragging, it was like very, very slightly dragging. But that moved and my shoulder moved at the same time. And I would say that was within three, four months. But everything else in terms of moving my hand and, and you know, walking and all those things was back before that. What didn't come back the way that it was because, you know, I'm not the person that I was before. What didn't come back was my... Well, it's fatigue. I mean, you must have heard this many times. Fatigue is the absolute killer. And it bothers me a lot that there's so little research into fatigue after stroke, even though it's a recognised condition. Likewise with um, depression after stroke. Um, I, I, I don't have depression, but I have suffered from low mood at various points in this journey. And then, as I mentioned to you earlier, the emotional lability. So I get upset easily. I get irritable quite easily I don't have control over my emotions once they start to go I've just got to let it ride its course and those things can all be quite challenging and of course they're all not visible so they can be challenging both in coping with them and also in the fact that because other people can't see them they don't know that you're that you have these problems. After two weeks in hospital Margaret was ready to come home. We had a big session in the hospital. I mean, I thought that both hospitals were fantastic, but the various doctors that were involved in my care at the Royal Free, plus the, the PT, the OT, and my husband and my, my older daughter, Harriet, we all had a big session and talked everything through. But it was still quite nerve-wracking because at that time I was walking and I was managing stairs, but I couldn't do that by myself. But yeah, I mean, I think it is better to be at home than be in hospital. So I was quite glad to come home and quite happy to come home when they said that I was able to do so. And then I had these people visiting every day for a while. I knew almost from the start that I wouldn't be able to go back to running my company. It's not that it was a big company, it was just me. It was a market research consultancy. But for a long time, my office is is right through that wall. If I even glanced in there, it just put me into a very low mood. I mean, I'm very happy to be working again now, but it was never going to be that, you know, finding my own clients, writing proposals, designing projects, finding all the people to be involved in the project, writing, you know, all that stuff. Even even saying that out loud now starts to slow my brain down. It was just too much and it will always be too much and I won't do that again. I've, I've taken the step now of closing down the company completely. I've deregistered at company's house, etc., etc. So that is a loss, but I think it was the right thing to do because I didn't want to be constantly thinking, well, will I go back to that one day? So I am sad about that. I'm sad that I'm not the person that I was. I still find multitasking different. I've, I've had difficulties with processing noise. Sort of all of these things come back to the fatigue because if you get upset, if you're in a very noisy environment, if I think about things too much, if I talk to too many people or I'm in a busy meeting or anything like that, they all contribute to slowing the brain down. And then I find that I can't, I just have to stop. There isn't an alternative. I can't always go on. I have to get myself out of a situation. And so you have to learn to live with that. I have learned to live with that. It took a while. I didn't live with it very well in the first couple of years. I kept trying to do too much. I kept trying to pretend that I was better than I was. I didn't change things sufficiently So for a long time, I sat on the bed 
every single afternoon for hours and hours and hours. And while I was sitting there, I was thinking, get up and do that, go shopping, cook the meal, you know, do this, do that, do something. And four hours later, I would still be there thinking those same thoughts and not having achieved it. Where I am now and what's different now is that I'm much more aware of my limitations and I'm much more willing to admit to them. So instead of just saying yes to things, I'm much better at saying no. I have a much curtailed social life, but that's fine. I don't go to parties anymore. I don't put myself into noisy environments. I don't put myself into environments where I have to talk or explain myself to a lot of people or indeed have a lot of people saying to me, oh gosh, I haven't seen you for a while, but you're fine, obviously, because you look great. So I avoid that and I spend more time with people that know me well, my family, my close friends, where I'm not having to go through that sort of situation and where people understand what the differences are and what my limitations are. Although Margaret has made a fantastic recovery, she finds the stroke has affected the way she interacts with the people around her. If I was in a situation where I actually felt I would say I've had a stroke, it's just that reaction that you get, oh my goodness, you don't look like you've had a stroke, you know. And that, then you have to think, well, shall I explain that any further or shall I just let it go? And actually it's a lot easier just to let it go. With friends and family and now work colleagues, it's more hoping that I can help them get to the level of understanding that they understand where my issues are, my problems are, and will understand if I have to stop doing something or drop out of something or don't accept something. And that's got to a good stage now with my friends and family. And at work, it's getting there. I have friends who are still very, very good friends. I have other friends who have pretty much disappeared because I don't have the energy to be the one making the arrangement. If any of them came to me and said, I want to come and see you, I'll come over for lunch. The nicest things that people have done have actually said, I'll come for lunch and bring it with me. But I don't go out of my way now to contact people to arrange things because I just don't have the energy to do that. So I tend to leave it more that people will come to me and those are the people that I see. And that's fine. You know, you don't need to have masses of people in your life to still have these good, strong relationships and friendships and family, and that works well. Margaret was forced to adapt to a different life after her stroke, but has taken it all in her stride. She makes sure that she puts herself first, and in doing so, continues to enjoy life with friends and family. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Margaret reveals the turning point in her recovery. He referred me to the National Hospital for Neurosurgery in Queen Square, and that was the biggest help. <laughs> That's what really started to put me on my journey to recovery because I saw a doctor there initially who put me through a lot of cognitive testing. And whilst I still fell within normal ranges, she was able to tell me that I did have a cognitive deficit compared to where I'd been before. And she was the first person that said to me, don't think that you're the same person that you were before because you're not. And she talks about the impact that a stroke support group had on her life. At that time, I wasn't working and she put me into that group and I was seven months after my stroke. There were five of us in the group, all of working age. Only one was working again. And it really was a lifesaver because we were able to talk about things that were affecting us as relatively young people who'd had strokes and who were all suffering with very severe fatigue issues. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Let's hear how Margaret got herself back into work. I've been working now for about, it's coming up for 18 months. I'm working for the Stroke Association and... In many ways, it is an ideal place to be. Yeah, so it was over two years until I was able to do that. The biggest thing that happened in there, I went back to see my consultant at UCLH because I knew I was having so much problem with things like multitasking, just with life in general, to be honest. I couldn't understand why I was so tired. And part of the reason for that is because no one really tells you. When you leave hospital, okay, you might see an OT and a PT for a while, but no one tells you what you're going to feel like otherwise. And once they've gone, and my OT and PT, they signed me off after a few weeks without consulting me at all. I can remember each of them just sitting on the sofa there and saying, and turn, oh, right, well, this will be my last visit today. And I'm like, oh, right, OK, fine. And then they disappeared. And I went back to UCLH and to, I saw Professor Waring there. And he referred me to the National Hospital for Neurosurgery in Queen Square. And that was the biggest help. <laughs> That's what really started to put me on my journey to recovery. Because I saw a doctor there initially who put me through a lot of cognitive testing and whilst I still fell within normal ranges, she was able to tell me that I did have a cognitive deficit compared to where I'd been before. And she was the first person that said to me, don't think that you're the same person that you were before because you're not. And you have to adjust to that. And then after I saw her a few times, she put me into a group that was just starting for working age stroke survivors. Because this is the other thing, even as strokes are happening to people at a younger age, it's still only a quarter of strokes that are under age 65. So we are very much in the minority. And getting back to work after stroke is really difficult. And as far as I am aware, it's only around the 50% mark. So at that time, I wasn't working. And she put me into that group. And I was seven months after my stroke. There were five of us in the group, all of working age. Only one was working again. And it really was a lifesaver because we were able to talk about things that were affecting us as relatively young people who'd had strokes and who were all suffering with very severe fatigue issues and who, with the exception of the one man in the group, had not gone back to work. And even with this guy, he had gone back because he felt he had to and he said that he coped with it by pretending to be someone he wasn't. In other words, he pretended that he was a ditzy person and needed help with lots of tasks so that he could sit back and get people to do things for him. But he had to pretend to be someone that he wasn't. He kept it secret. I've never kept it a secret. And I, I feel very strongly that there has been a stigma attached to stroke and we should be doing everything that we can to get rid of that stigma because hey, this is something that happens to a lot of people. There are over a million people living with stroke in the UK. And anyway, I think the fact that people think there is a stigma is wrong. I mean, I think the very fact that you're doing these podcasts is about stroke survivors wanting to have a voice. Whenever I've gone into a room of stroke survivors, they've all got a story to tell and they all want to tell that story. And I think people thinking, oh, we shouldn't talk about it because they won't want to talk about it. I think that's completely wrong. 
But yes, in the case of this person, he had taken the decision not to talk about it. The others had been more open about it, but one was a GP. She's now back two days a week and she's had to give up her partnership. One worked for one of the major firms in the city and has not been able to go back to work. And then there was me, who at the time wasn't working, but I'm now back three days a week. The reason I'm able to work is because, one, I do three days a week. I do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I have three days on and four days off. And that's the only way that I can manage it. I also have huge flexibility. I work from home at least one day a week. But if I need to work at home the rest of the time, I can. No one's on my back saying, you've got to spend so many hours in the office. It's really flexible. And for that, I'm really grateful. It's about getting the job done. It's not about spending hours sitting behind a desk. I've had a lot of debate over the last 18 months internally and with a counsellor or a mentor about am I doing the right thing and does the fact that obviously this affects my fatigue, so should I not do it? But of course, the choice is do this and work within my limitations and try to you know, manage it as best I can or, or do nothing. And I don't want to be doing nothing. I'm not ready to give up on work. I want to be earning some money. I wasn't ready to give that up either. And so I am definitely doing the right thing. It's also quite hard being surrounded by stroke day in, day out. But again, I just think, well, where else would I go? I've never worked in the charity sector before. I'm now thinking, gosh, what took me so long? Because it's been a revelation working in the charity sector and I absolutely love it. And at the end of the day, I do like working in the field of stroke because I have a personal interest, obviously. And it is fascinating to see the advances that there are and the issues that still exist. I work in market research. That's what I'm doing. The other reason that I'm able to work is that I'm doing a job that is well within my capabilities. I have no management responsibility. I'm not responsible for budgeting or staff or finance. I wouldn't be able to do those things anymore. And that's an honest assessment. And so having found this job that allows me to do what my skills and background are, but without any of that sort of management side that I had running my own company or previously, it's ideal. So I would be nuts, I think, to give it up, having found something that works so perfectly, even though it can be difficult. The emotional side of things is difficult because if I get upset in the workplace, it's not only challenging for me, it's challenging for other people as well. But then I am surrounded by people who work in the field of stroke. So on balance, I am doing the right thing, but sometimes it's tough. As well as getting back into employment, Margaret also got involved with volunteering. Through the group at the National Hospital, I discovered an organisation called REACH Volunteering, and I would highly recommend that to anyone after a stroke. Or um, It's not just for people with, living with disability, but it worked very well for me in that it's skills-based, and through them I found a placement with a humanitarian organisation and also with a research charity that, that carries out research with disabled consumers. And they were the first ones. I mean, I remember applying for that and feeling so pleased with myself for doing the application and phoning my daughter and saying, oh, I've done this application form. It won't go anywhere, but at least I've done it. But the reason I did it was because they asked for lived experience of living with a disability or with a long-term condition. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I might not think that I can do this, but I'm living with this now. So that's why I applied. And I was successful in applying for that. And it's been great. I'm still working with them. And it was that, that when I saw the position with the Stroke Association, 
I just thought, well, I'll just fill in the application form. But at that point, it was all about doing something and just feeling that I was moving forward. And again, I thought, well, you know, they've interviewed someone like, you know, me, an older person living with a disability. I remember coming home from the interview and saying to my husband, well, if they just wanted to tick those boxes, then they've done that. But in fact, I was really delighted when they said that they wanted to talk to me further and that resulted in the job that I'm doing now. The other organisation that I would mention is Attend ABI, which is in Cavendish Square, where the King's Fund is. And it was the National Hospital again that referred me on there. And I did a back to work course with them, which was very helpful. The ABI is acquired brain injury. So they work with people who have had strokes, but also who might have had, um, I don't know, a cycle accident, any trauma to the head. Uh, They work with people. And that was also extremely helpful. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that I feel very lucky that I don't know whether it's living in London or whether it was just, as I say, that really useful link from my consultant at UCLH to the National Hospital but I feel that I've benefited from things that a lot of people actually don't get to benefit from. That group at the National was run by two neuropsychologists. There were five of us in the group. We saw them initially I think once a month and then every three months and then every six months. We only recently stopped and we had all that support for over two years and not many people get that, really not many people get that. And then I had also there, well, I had the the cognitive analysis support and I also had fatigue management support. So I did about three sessions with someone on how to manage fatigue. And when when you're sitting there, it all sounds like common sense, but it's, it's not. So, for example, I live my life now by, I wake up and I think, right, what's the one main thing I'm doing today? So today it's talking to you and I make that my priority and everything else is on a lower tier and it's like you either drop the things that are further down or you get help with them or you know you manage but you think right this is the thing that I have to do or I'm, I, I definitely want to do and so there were so many good things that they told me about managing fatigue and then they referred me on to attend ABI which was very helpful I, I mean I honestly thought I would never go back to work I just thought I'm just going to have to find other things to do. I was thinking of taking up French, for example. Was, you know, I didn't want to be just sitting at home, but I thought I will not be able to manage going back to work. And that week, it was very difficult. I almost dropped out on the first day because I thought I will never be able to get down to Cavendish Square from Crouch End for nine o'clock every day for Monday to Friday for one week. But I did in the end. And that also was a big step on the way to getting this job. And finally, Margaret says we should never think that we won't get better. I think one of the key things is to never let anyone tell you that you won't get better or that recovery stops at six months. I think that's one of the stroke myths that is still out there. And it comes from clinicians, it comes from doctors. I think it is changing, but people will say, well, you should, if you'll get so far within six months and then you whatever you've got to then, you probably won't get any better. That's not true. And, and you will. You may find that biggest part of your recovery is in that time so my physical stuff was definitely all back within that six months but my mental recovery is still ongoing and that's as much to do with how you manage your own life and how you organize your support as much as actually any actual recovery it's more about as I say understanding what you have got and how to manage it and how to make best use of it day after day and that links in very much I think to 
rather than just saying yes or yes I can do this or yes of course we'll go off and do this together or whatever just being aware that you can say no or you can say well look yes we will do this but bear in mind that I might need to rest at a certain point or if there's a day where there are several activities planned to say that's all great but let's bear in mind that I will maybe start with this one but then drop out of that one and then come back in here so that they are always aware that you as the stroke survivor are thinking about how to manage your day to manage fatigue and other things and likewise with the emotional stuff I think fewer stroke survivors have problems with the emotional ability but it's still a very large percentage because I again hear people talking about it all the time and I think it's just making people aware that if you do get upset it's not necessarily about them and it's not necessarily about you the stroke survivor either it's about a process in your brain that you no longer have control over so just being sure that people are aware of that but I think for stroke survivors it is that knowing that you're going to be living with this for a long time possibly the rest of your life but that doesn't mean that things won't get better and that things can't be good. Margaret puts the incredible progress she's made since her stroke down to the help of her family, her husband Morris, her children Harriet, Oliver and Alice, who all looked after her and encouraged her through the early stages of recovery. If you're listening to this podcast and have had a stroke, or somebody close to you has, and you'd like to learn more, search for the Stroke Association online. And for a dedicated webpage, search NHS Strokes. And if you're a regular listener or you're just hearing stroke stories for the first time, please subscribe, rate and comment because that will help us spread the word. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.